Despite a historic fourth indictment, new polling shows former President Donald Trump is not losing support among Republican voters. It's Wednesday, August 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, confidential files obtained by NPR reveal, quote, barbaric and negligent treatment at ICE detention centers. Also, coup leaders in Niger work to tighten their hold on power through a series of new appointments and arrests. And this hour, many police departments are relying on live camera feeds to fight crime, but that's raising concerns about civil liberties. Technology has really challenged what the average expectation of privacy is and not in a good way. In sports, Red Sox win, cloudy and in the 70s today. It's 7.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. One week since the historically deadly wildfires broke out in Lahaina on Maui, officials have released the identities of two of the victims. In Paris, Janika Meta has more. 74-year-old Robert Dickman and 79-year-old Buddy Jantok are the first two victims whose identities have been released by the county of Maui and its police department. They also added to the total number of those dead, which is now more than 100. Of those victims, three others have been identified, but their families have yet to be notified. Members of the mortuary response teams with the Federal Department of Health and Human Services are in Lahaina, helping local officials with the identification process. Janaki Mehta, NPR News. Meanwhile, in Northern California, a wildfire fed by gusty winds from a thunderstorm raced through national forest land near the state's border with Oregon. That prompted evacuations in mostly rural areas and led to road closures. The fire, which has burned about 3,000 acres, is one of more than a dozen mostly small fires that were sparked by the storms that brought lightning and downdrafts. Vice President Kamala Harris visited Seattle yesterday for the second time since taking office. She marked the first anniversary of the Inflation Reduction Act. From member station KNKX, Bellamy Palethorpe has more. The vice president told a packed auditorium that the climate crisis is stark and vivid, and we are seeing it in real time. She referenced deadly heat waves, devastating droughts, hurricanes and wildfires, most recently in Maui. So all of that to say it is clear The clock is not just ticking, it is banging. And that is why one year ago, President Biden and I made the largest climate investment in America's history. She said in total, they've committed nearly a trillion dollars to building a clean energy economy in the United States for things like boosting solar and wind power production while lowering energy costs and creating new jobs. For NPR News, I'm Bellamy Palethorpe in Seattle. It's been three weeks since security forces ousted the democratically elected president of Niger, and the coup leaders appear to be tightening their grip on power. And Pierre's Emmanuel Ekemwotu has more. We've had a visible, a lot of visible support for the coup, mainly in the capital, um, where the government's really unpopular. And, uh, you know, we've seen pro-coup demonstrations in the streets, a rally in a stadium, but there's also upset. You know, anti-coup protests were dispersed by soldiers and there's unease in other parts of the country. You know, this is a very poor landlocked country in a fragile part of the world, you know, battling multiple insurgencies by armed groups. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reporting. World financial markets, Asian markets sharply lower by the close. You're listening to NPR News.
Nearly 150,000 United Auto Workers will vote next week on whether to approve a strike authorization against Detroit automakers. UAW officials say talks are moving slowly and pay and other major issues haven't been addressed yet. The union's contract with Ford, GM and Stellantis, also known as Chrysler, expire in about a month. The vote doesn't mean a strike will happen. It is a routine part of contract negotiations. The U.S. Mint has released a quarter into circulation that honors Jovita Idar, a South Texas journalism pioneer and Mexican-American civil rights activist. NPR's Marianne Navarro has more. The Jovita Idar quarter is one of five in the 2023 American Women Quarters program. The program began last year and pays tribute to women who have made significant contributions to U.S. history. Idar was a Mexican-American journalist, activist, teacher, and suffragist. The Laredo, Texas native wrote in-depth articles that championed the civil rights of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans in the early 20th century. The coin features an image of Idar with her hands clasped and inscriptions detailing her accomplishments. I'm Maria Navarro in San Antonio. In women's World Cup soccer, Australia is playing England in Sydney today in the semifinal match. The score so far is 1-0 England. The winner of this game faces Spain in the final this weekend. U.S. futures contracts are trading flat at this hour. Asia markets, though, sharply lower by the close. The Nikkei in Japan down 1.5%. The Hang Seng down 1.3%. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. A new coalition is launching a campaign today to implement ranked choice voting in Boston elections. That system would allow voters to rank multiple candidates on a ballot instead of selecting just one. If no one wins a majority, votes for candidates with that with the least support are reassigned to the next preferred candidate until someone gets more than half the vote. Campaign co-chair Cheryl Crawford says ranked choice voting eliminates so-called vote spoiling. People might see a candidate that they really like and think that person may not be able to win, but they really like that person's value. This gives you the opportunity to rank candidates in the order that you like them. But Paul Craney of the conservative Mass Fiscal Alliance says ranked choice voting is a barrier to the average voter. Voters are not familiar with all the camps running. They don't know all the positions. So ranked choice is more confusing. The proposal would need support from the Boston City Council and Mayor Wu. It would then have to pass through the State House via a home rule petition. Boston's new gun violence task force plans to relaunch street outreach programs to reduce shootings in the city. The gun violence reduction management team met for the first time yesterday. It includes members of the mayor's office, police and community members. Officials tell the Boston Globe the group will focus on a small number of locations where gun violence is clustered. The creation of the task force follows a pledge by Mayor Wu to reduce homicides and shootings in the city by 20 percent in the next three years. Overall, violent crime has decreased in the city since the 1990s. Business leaders on Cape Cod are expressing concerns over Governor Maura Healey's new plan for rebuilding the Sagamore and Bourne Bridges. The state will seek more than $1 billion in federal aid for the project, which now prioritizes work on the Sagamore Bridge. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. Originally, the state planned to seek enough funds to cover the cost of rebuilding both bridges, but now the Sagamore will go first. That worries Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce CEO Paul Nedzwicki. 
He says funding uncertainties could result in the Bourne Bridge only being rehabilitated. And that, he says, could hurt the Cape's economy. We're talking about potentially a full closure of that bridge for anywhere from 6 to 12 months. And that would cause an economic dislocation on the Cape that we may not recover from. The application for the funding will be submitted by August 21st. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A Massachusetts plumbing board is showing support for a change to the state plumbing code. The change, proposed by state legislators, would allow for all gender restrooms in public facilities without the need for a variance. Requests for all gender restrooms are currently approved on a project-by-project basis. The proposal will now go to a public hearing. It's 7.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. The Red Sox kicked off their longest road trip of the season with a win. The team defeated the Washington Nationals on their home field by one run. The final score was 5-4. to four. The teams play again tonight at 7. We have some patchy fog and drizzle this morning, then chance of showers and thunderstorms today, otherwise cloudy with a high around 75. Tonight, patchy fog and a chance of more showers and thunderstorms. We'll have lows in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, another chance of rain and thunderstorms in the morning, then mostly cloudy skies and high temperatures in in the upper 70s. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. Maui County has updated its message. Come back to Maui, just stay out of the burn zone. We'll give you the latest on the wildfire recovery in a few minutes. But first, Donald Trump and 18 others charged with taking part in a racketeering scheme to overturn his 2020 election loss in Georgia now have fewer than 10 days to voluntarily surrender to authorities in Fulton County. And unlike the former president's arraignments in other cases, this could be televised. Among those who testified before the grand jury that issued this latest indictment against Trump is former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, a fellow Republican, and he joins us this morning. Good morning. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, you've said this indictment is, quote, poised to land with a louder thud than the others. What is it about this case that makes it maybe more significant? Yeah, what we watched play out right after the 2020 election cycle here in Georgia was just this series of what felt like at the time very coordinated events of of just a misinformation game. It was crazy ideas uh, that would that would start and then they would try to find you know, slight little issues out in the out in the field, out across the state to amplify with so media and and just really change the sentiment of not only Georgians, but really the country to just hoodwink Republicans that somehow, some way, everybody was corrupt in Georgia that that uh, you know, around the election system. And it was wrong. And it's taken us two and a half years to get to this point, uh, unfortunately. But where it hasn't seemed to resonate is among Trump's base. Now, you're one of very few Republicans willing to call Trump's lies about the election lies. Trump continues to hold a very strong grip on the Republican Party, despite being charged with all these felonies. In fact, his popularity seems to go up with each indictment. Why does he continue to have such popularity, even as he racks up um, felony charges? Yeah, Donald Trump has confused Republicans across the country to think that uh, 
the louder and more angry you are, the more conservative you are. And that couldn't be any more accurate. I'm a Republican because I believe in, in the conservative principles of smaller government and, and public safety and national security. Uh, I believe in states' rights. Um, th those are the core tenets why a majority of Republicans got into the Republican Party. But Donald Trump's confused us. And, and this is a painful healing process for us. I do sense there is a changing of, of the tide starting to come through. Um, and this is our opportunity. If we as Republicans don't use this moment of insanity inside our party as a pivot point, then shame on us. Uh, we should be able to use this as a pivot point. And, and to be honest with you, I think this is our time for all of the other candidates not named Trump running for president to come out and boldly state that not only is he wrong, not only has he lied to us, but it's time for him to get out of the race. I think U.S. senators, conservative governors, state legislatures, uh, everybody that has a voice and a platform should speak up as a Republican and tell Donald Trump to get out of this race because it's not good for the party, but more importantly, it's not good for this country. But they're not doing that. I mean, in right now, that's not what's happening. So what's the future of well, the party? Yeah, I, I do think it is starting to happen. Okay, there where do you see it happening? Several, several candidates that are starting to speak up. Um, and it does feel like we're down to the wire here in this primary process. But the reality is we do have some time. And I think if, 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 you, if you look at the polling, a majority, a slim majority of Republicans actually don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee. But because of the primary process, there's certainly enough uh, Republicans now that could short circuit that system and get him in there to be our nominee. But quite honestly, it would be the biggest mistake our party's ever made is to lift him up as the nominee for, for two reasons. One, because I do believe he would be beat by the other, the other party. But secondly, even if he was to, to somehow figure out a way to be a president again, it would be a disaster for this country. And I would argue a disaster for the world for somebody that is this small minded to have that much control. Now, you testified before the grand jury on Monday, hours before the indictment was made public. And before you did that, Trump called you a, quote, nasty disaster on his Truth Social account and said you, quote, shouldn't testify. Some pointed to that as witness tampering or intimidation. Do you think that's what he was doing? Well, it certainly didn't deter me from, from answering the questions of the grand jury, uh, getting there on time and uh, fulfilling my civic duties. Um, in front of the grand jury. And look, this has been a long, painful process for us in Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, as I watched those indictments come out that evening, uh, there really was no names that surprised me. There was no scenarios that surprised me. We knew this was going on behind the scenes when, at real time here in Georgia. Um, but like I said, th this is an opportunity and, and, and we have to take advantage of this as Republicans as, a, as the opportunity to just clear the air, to put the facts on the table. If If Donald Trump and his cohorts didn't do anything wrong, then they all, they're going to have plenty of airtime to be able to prove that. Uh, my, my guess is they're not going to be able to prove that all this crazy, chaotic conspiracy theories and, and gyrations that they made uh, actually were, were rooted in, in any sort of facts. But this is important because we can finally put it out there for Republicans around the country to stop believing uh, Donald Trump and, and his long list of lies and start believing in the party again. Um, if we make the 2024 election about the issues, um, I believe Republicans will have a, an incredible opportunity, uh, maybe maybe the best opportunity in 100 years to win the White House. Um, if we make it about the issues, if we make it about the border and the economy and national security and public safety, I think those are issues that a majority of Americans will sigh with us um, instead of uh, Joe Biden and the Democrats. Do you want this case uh, in Georgia 
and the arraignment. Do you want it to be televised? Do you think that would be good for the country and for the public to see? Yeah, personal opinion. Uh, yeah, I do. I, I think the more Americans can see, and specifically Republicans, the more Republicans can see of the erratic, just uh, cr crazy uh, series of events that played out, uh, the more they can see it in three dimension, I think the quicker we're going to start to heal uh, as a party and move past Donald Trump. I, I just, I think history's going to prove that Donald Trump was one of the biggest mistakes this country's ever made. Georgia's former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, thank you for talking with us and taking the time. Thank you. There's mounting evidence that downed power lines may have played at least some role in the deadly wildfires on Maui. Hawaiian Electric, the state's largest power company, is already facing lawsuits. And when asked for comment, the utility said, quote, at this early stage, the cause of the fire has not been determined and we will work with the state and county as they conduct their review. Meanwhile, the death toll has climbed past 100 and is expected to keep rising as the search continues for hundreds of people still missing. The fire that burned western Maui forced the lives of many residents of the town of Lahaina into chaos. It also disrupted the island's powerful economic engine, which is tourism. NPR's Jason DeRose joins us now from Maui to talk about the complicated response to the question, should people vacation on Maui in the wake of this destruction? Jason, I got lucky to go to Maui a few years ago on a vacation. It was really awesome. I mean, how big is the tourism industry on Maui? It is huge. Last year, visitors spent nearly $5.7 billion here. That's according to the State Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism. And nearly 3 million people visited the island last year as tourists. And beyond that, tourism really touches the lives of nearly every Maui resident in some way. Yeah, but in the early hours and days of the fires, uh, Hawaii's lieutenant governor said Maui is not a safe place to be and state officials were discouraging non-essential travel. Why were they doing that? Well, it was about immediate resources, not wanting to take up airline seats that needed to be filled by rescue and recovery workers or not taking up hotel rooms needed for those people flying in to help. And they do plan to house some evacuees in hotel rooms and in home rentals around the state. But more recently, the official message has changed. Here's Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson. Please don't go to the west side of Maui. Don't go to West Maui. Obviously, there's so much going on with trying to rebuild it. But the rest of Maui is still open. So there's been a clear shift. Just don't go to the burn zone. Now, Jason, you've been there for about a week now. How open is the island for business? It's very open. The power and water are fine everywhere except Western Maui. Grocery stores outside the burn zone have plenty of food. You know, the other day I drove past a part of the island where the Ritz-Carlton and the Four Seasons are located. These are some high-end stays. So the argument from the mayor is that someone could be on vacation 20 or 30 miles away from the burn zone and not have any negative effect on the recovery. Okay, now what have you heard from residents about this revised message that Maui is indeed open for tourism? Well, more than half of the jobs on the island are directly related to tourism, such as hotel workers, restaurant servers, boat tour operators, snorkeling instructors. So they think it's crucial. If tourists cancel their late summer Maui dream vacations, it could actually hurt real people. Here's resident Christian Galapon, whose aunt is a housekeeper at a resort. Her home was destroyed in the fire. You know, people were asking her, you just lost everything. Why did you clock into work? And she's like, I still need to make money. <laughs> sure, everyone's processing 
everyone's kind of emotional about it. But on the other hand, yes, they still need to support their families, especially now since they just lost everything. Something else to mention, A, tourism can actually fund emergency aid. I talked with a tour boat operator the other day who says she took a group out snorkeling in the morning and used some of the money she made from that trip to buy cases of water and boxes of diapers and such. Then in the afternoon, she fueled up her boat, paying for the gas with money she made from that snorkeling group, and did a run to the shore off the coast of Lahaina to drop off those supplies. So many people here view tourism as a both-and solution. That's NPR's Jason DeRose reporting from Maui. Jason, thanks. You're welcome. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, a small weekly Kansas newspaper is struggling to continue to publish after a police raid that's been widely criticized as a potential First Amendment violation. It's 721. A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water? I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Showers and thunderstorms are possible this morning. Then it'll be cloudy today with a high near 74. Tonight, mostly cloudy and a low around 65. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, showers and thunderstorms possible in the morning. Then mostly cloudy and a high near 76. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Mattress Firm, whether customers browse online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. From Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm e. Martinez. While vacationing in California, NPR's Chad Campbell could hear sea lions barking from an island about two miles away from his house. He managed to get a little closer to record this. After wondering what the animals might be saying to each other, Chad asked an expert to speculate. It could be announcing that there's really yummy food over here. It could be, hey, look at me, look at me. Um, it could be just wanting to be social. They enjoy being together. Adam Ratner is the Associate Director of Conservation Education at the Marine Mammal Center. 
as you can hear, they're constantly engaging with each other. It's just one way that they are able to really tell each other what's on their minds. Radner says this is the world's largest hospital for marine mammals. Every year, they treat hundreds of sick, injured, and malnourished animals that are rescued along the coast. The center also makes house calls to treat animals that don't fit into a volunteer's pickup truck. We've gone out and actually administered medication to animals that have been hit by boats. We've disentangled whales that have been caught in trash. So we can still give those really large animals that second chance they deserve. The Marine Mammal Center has been here in Sausalito, California for almost 50 years, near the Golden Gate Bridge on the Marin Headlands. It's not easy to find, but annually more than 100,000 visitors make their way to this upstairs viewing deck. We can see a few dozen fenced-in pens, each with a small private swimming pool. When I visited, the hospital was caring for 65 patients, elephant seals, otters, harbor seals, and their most common patient, the California sea lion. We've got around 25 of them at the hospital, including this big guy right in the front row, an adult male named Tagozi that we rescued from Monterey County, suffering from a disease called leptospirosis, a bacterial infection of the kidneys. Tagozi is not barking, just laying quietly in his pen. He is still hungry though, and it's nearly feeding time, so we head downstairs. Our first stop is the fish kitchen, where volunteers are preparing today's lunch for the patients. Ratner says the animals can go through a thousand pounds of fish every day. For the young pups, we can make them different fish smoothies, whatever they might need to start building up that strength to eat food on their own. The Marine Mammal Center is a nonprofit organization funded completely by donations. Its staff is supplemented by more than a thousand active volunteers, including Giancarlo Rulli who is now the center's spokesperson. We have volunteers as young as 15 on our youth crew, and we have volunteers that are in their 90s. We could not do the work that we do every day without them. They're contributing upwards of 150,000 hours every single year to our operations. It's literally an army of volunteers. We follow two of those volunteers as they prepare to feed Tagozi, the adult male sea lion suffering from leptospirosis. Here's Adam Ratner again. He's clearly ill, he's got a disease, but he knows how to eat fish. So all we're gonna do is throw the fish into the water, let him chase after it, and that's gonna be his lunchtime feed, essentially. So got around five pounds of fish just at this meal alone. So as an adult male, he's weighing over 300 pounds, still could gain some weight though. About 25,000 animals have been through the hospital since it first opened, and Ratner says every one of them gets a unique name. But why Tagozi? And who gets to choose? It's actually the person out on the beach, the member of the public typically that finds the animal that calls us, that gets to name them. They just have to be really creative with the naming more than anything else. So I don't know exactly what the meaning of that was, but it was certainly meaningful to the person who found him on the beach. Does that mean give me some more fish? It could be get out of my pen now, you've done your part. It could be any number of things, but we know the second that he gets that clean bill of health, he's going to be back out in the wild with all of his friends. And that's exactly what happened. Thanks to the care he received at the Marine Mammal Center, Tagozi made a full recovery. Earlier this month, he and his fellow patient, Culey, were released back into the Pacific. Thank <laughs> you.
Chad Campbell, NPR News, Sausalito, California. This week, the rapper Melvin Barcliff, known to the hip-hop world as Magoo, died. He was best known as the partner of Timothy Timbaland Mosley, the accomplished hip-hop producer, and together they were known as the duo, Timbaland and Magoo. And with hits like Up Jumps to Boogie, they created an inventive new sound that took hip-hop by storm back in the late 90s. I cut with razor blades, play spades with unfeeness, evaluate this rap, take heat of freaking genius. Barcliff's rap name Magoo was inspired by the name of his aunt, Magdalene, who raised him. He was born in Norfolk, Virginia, and spent much of his childhood in Chesapeake. It was there, as a high school student, that he met Timbaland. The two shared a love of hip-hop and dreams of stardom. Their collaboration eventually led to the 1997 album Welcome to Our World. You can hear Timbaland's infectious beats and Magoo's playful lyricism in their song Love to Love You. In a 2013 interview for the College of William and Mary Hip Hop Collection, Magoo explained that hip hop is often misunderstood as being negative when lyrics open windows to harsh realities. Rap music was the first time I felt like, oh, they're talking about the stuff I know about. They're talking about the stuff that I see in my neighborhood. If I wasn't writing rhymes, I'd be breaking in homes. I'm kind of young. So my gun's my security. I'm not afraid. Do what you gonna do to me. This year, we celebrate 50 years of hip-hop. And Magoo's life is a huge part of that legacy. You cannot put a price on the significance of hip-hop music and how it changed culture. Magoo died at the age of 50, the same age as the art form that he loved. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. Retired NFL tackle Michael Orr has come forward with allegations that the family he lived with as a teenager, as portrayed in the 2009 movie The Blind Side, sought to profit from his name and story. It's 7.30. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll in Hawaii from wildfires has risen to at least 106. Search teams have located additional human remains as they continue examining burned houses, businesses, and vehicles on Maui. Officials expect that number to keep going up. Hawaii's governor says the Lahaina bypass has been reopened now that there are enough security personnel in place. Still, the disaster zone remains off-limits to residents. Here's Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson. We didn't have enough uh, personnel, Uh, so now that we do, uh, it makes it less likely that people will contaminate the area that that is still being searched. An investigation by NPR reveals a trove of government records related to the detention of migrants at U.S. detention facilities. NPR's Tom Dreisbach reports. 
These files, they include more than 1,600 pages of reports covering more than two dozen facilities all across the country from 2017 to 2019. And the inspectors found serious problems at these facilities, including pepper spraying of mentally ill detainees, retaliation for filing complaints, ignoring medical problems, filthy conditions like a cockroach on a medical exam table, and grimy medical instruments. Some of those facilities have since been closed. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Donald Trump is facing mounting legal jeopardy. That includes the latest indictment out of Georgia, accusing him and his allies of trying to upend the 2020 election. Even so, WBUR's Anthony Brooks reports the former president remains in the lead in the race for the Republican presidential nomination in New Hampshire. A new morning consult poll shows Trump still dominating the race, leading Florida Governor Ron DeSantis by 41 points, with other Republicans polling in the single digits. Tom Rath, a former Republican attorney general in New Hampshire, says it's the latest evidence of just how loyal Trump's supporters are. But Rath says the criminal indictment out of Georgia, the fourth against Trump in the last five months, will only weaken him going forward. I don't know that it's going to move the needle very much right now. But it will hurt him. If he got to a general election, it would be devastating. Sooner or later, people say enough. Rath says while Trump remains popular with his base, if Republicans give him the nomination, it will guarantee the re-election of Joe Biden. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Massachusetts State Police are investigating the apparent drowning death of an elderly woman at Castle Island this week. The 93-year-old woman was on a trip Monday as part of a private adult daycare program. Investigators say she may have panicked after swimming into deep water. Lifeguards performed CPR on the woman before she was transported to Boston Medical Center, where she died. The city of Boston is starting a pilot program to help fund delivery services in Alston. The year-long program will use couriers on electric cargo bikes to make deliveries for local businesses. The city says it's a way to reduce traffic and greenhouse gas emissions while supporting local businesses. Jessie Rubin is the food access coordinator for the Alston Brighton Health Collaborative. She says the delivery service will be a huge help for the nonprofit's farm share participants, many of whom subsidize their orders with food assistance benefits. People might have mobility issues, they're homebound, they might be older, or, you know, they're one working parent and they don't have time to pick up their farm share or they forget and they miss a date and that's missed food for people that need it the most. The program gets underway in mid-September. It's 734. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. The Red Sox beat the Washington Nationals in D.C. last night 5-4. to four. The teams will face off again tonight for Game 2. That gets underway at 7. Overcast with a high in the mid-70s today. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms this morning. It stays overcast tonight and falls to lows in the mid-60s. More showers and thunderstorms possible overnight, then mostly cloudy with highs in the mid-70s tomorrow, and there's a chance of rain in the morning. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. 
ideas, and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Fadel in Washington, D.C. Despite a police raid and the death of its co-owner, the Marion County record published today, as usual. Police seized computers at the small-town Kansas newspaper last week in a move that's been widely criticized as a potential First Amendment violation. Rose Conlin of member station KMUW and the Kansas News Service reports from Marion. Marion County Record, this is Sherry, may I help you? It was hectic all day at the Marion County Record as the seven-person staff rushed to meet its midnight deadline to send the paper to print. Much of what they needed is held on servers and hard drives that remain in police custody after Friday's raid of the office and publisher Eric Meyer's house. So they scrambled to reconstruct pages of the newspaper and iron out details in their own reporting on the story that's thrust this central Kansas town of around 2,000 people into the national spotlight. We're having to recreate legals, classifieds, all of our normal things that we have readily available and our server is gone. Sherry Bentz, the paper's office manager, fielded a deluge of calls. Community members asking how they can help, reporters seeking interviews, and people from across the country voicing their support. Bentz says the paper has gotten over 1,500 new digital subscribers. On Tuesday, several people stopped by the office in person to subscribe. Did you get a subscription? I did. So do we. Are you from Kansas City? I'm from Phoenix. Around mid-morning, staff got a temporary server set up so they could access their emails for the first time in days. They were able to use some older computers to work on the week's paper. Sports reporter Nicholas Kimball said it was slow going. Everything was on those computers, and so Eric's basically having to rebuild uh, the template that was going to go out for this week, re-downloading software programs so he can start working again. The raid appears to have stemmed from a dispute with a local restaurant owner over a drunk driving conviction. The Marion County Police Department, which had a search warrant but not a subpoena typically sought to seize journalist materials, has said the raid was justified. Emily Bradbury, executive director of the Kansas Press Association, stopped by the newsroom to help answer calls. She worries the seizure could set a dangerous precedent. And I'm hearing from journalists across the state saying, wait a minute, I get tips all the time and I use public databases to look up information all the time. So does that mean they can come and take my entire computer? Meantime, attorney Bernie Rhodes, who represents the paper, is deciding what legal steps to take. The damage has already occurred. I can't stop that, but I can try to send a message loud and clear. It won't be tolerated in the future. Outside the paper's building, people have left flowers in memory of Joanne Meyer, the co-owner of the Marion County Record. The 98-year-old died on Saturday, a day after police raided her home. The coroner's report listed the cause as sudden cardiac arrest. Publisher Eric Meyer says he believes stress from the raid played a role in his mother's death. Her funeral will be held Saturday. And now that this week's paper is in newsstands, its reporters say they'll turn their attention to next week's edition and fight to get their equipment back. For NPR News, I'm Rose Conlin in Marion. 
Police departments in major cities have been making use of live camera feeds to fight crime. They collect the information in so-called real-time crime centers. Now, some smaller and mid-sized cities say they also need this technology to help with staff shortages. Here's Jad Khalil with VPM News in Richmond. Earlier this summer, Tenora Thurston was walking to a friend and neighbor's house in Gilpin Court, a group of public housing apartments in Northside Richmond. Then she saw a man working on what she thought were solar panels. So, okay, what you doing, sir? He said, well, putting up cameras. She's an organizer with Virginia's Legal Aid Justice Center and describes herself as nosy. I said, we got enough cameras up. He said, we need some different cameras. These are license plate readers. They're an easy way to track a person's movement. And Richmond plans to incorporate them into an even more powerful network. The Real-Time Crime Center allows for real-time access to information. Will Pelfrey is a criminal justice professor and consultant for the Richmond Police Department on the Real-Time Crime Center. Imagine all the cameras that are scattered across Richmond. Most red lights have a camera. Lots of toll booths have cameras, and toll booths also have license plate readers. A real-time crime center brings these, as well as other police tech, into one place. Richmond's plan is to have 109 feet of screens, so police could monitor many feeds at the same time. And Richmond PD could tap into other camera networks through agreements with schools, the state government, and even private businesses. Then RPD has thousands of video feeds that they can access at any given moment. These real-time crime centers started almost 20 years ago, typically in bigger cities. But they're spreading across the U.S. to smaller places. And federal COVID aid is a big reason why. It would have been pretty difficult to do this without the American Rescue Plan dollars. LeVar Stoney is mayor of Richmond. The city is getting $750,000 in ARPA money to set up their center. Stoney says the city needs one to get tougher on crime. We are unfortunately experiencing a roughly 150 officer shortage at the moment. And so how do you replace uh, individuals who are walking the beat or who are patrolling certain areas? You have to replace that with technology and innovation. But there are civil liberties concerns. Beryl Lipton is a researcher at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Nationwide, it's counted about 135 real-time crime centers. ARPA has funded new ones in cities like Mesa, Arizona, and Spokane, Washington. Technology has really challenged what the average expectation of privacy is, and not in a good way. She asks, should the police have access to video feeds of your grocery shopping? or things like AI technology and facial recognition. This kind of access to public and private space in Richmond should be discussed as the city sets up its programs, says Lipton. And there needs to, at the very least, be a conversation about whether or not a community thinks it is a worthwhile use of millions of tax dollars. But supporters of real-time crime centers say the technology helps with community trust issues because video instead of witnesses could ID suspects. And reduced police contact means fewer opportunities for bad interactions, they say. However, Thurston with the Legal Aid Justice Center is skeptical that the technology can strengthen community police relationships. It won't go well because it's already a trust issue. They don't walk the neighborhood. The Richmond Police Department says it's still in the planning stages of the real-time crime center. It can't answer yet how far the surveillance network will reach. For NPR News, I'm Jad Khalil in Richmond, Virginia.
This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to WBUR on this Wednesday morning. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, we get reaction from GOP voters to former President Donald Trump's fourth indictment. Polls show his support among Republicans is growing. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms through about mid-morning this morning. Otherwise cloudy today and in the mid-70s. Tonight, still cloudy. Temperatures fall to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, a chance of rain in the morning. Otherwise overcast and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com And Cityside Subaru, featuring the all-new, all-electric Subaru Solterra on Route 60 in Belmont and at CitysideSubaru.com. It's a Subaru summer. Boston-based Galecto plans to stop developing a drug for a disease that causes lung scarring after it missed the goal of its mid-stage trial. The company says it'll focus on its other drugs to try and save enough money to stay in business through 2025. Company officials say they're reevaluating how they allocate resources. Massachusetts is improving in its rank of best states for business. The the Bay State ranked 15th overall in CNBC's annual top states for business ranking. That's up from 24th place last year. The state ranking improved because of progress in the life and health categories. Legal Seafoods may be leaving its headquarters in the seaport, but a famous sculpture is there to stay. Legal Seafoods is selling their seafood processing plant and a metal cod sculpture to Stavis Seafoods. The Boston Globe reports the details of the deal are unclear. Legal plans to move its operations to a smaller facility in Milford. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm Martinez. There's a new twist in the story of retired NFL tackle Michael Orr, whose life story was a subject of the 2009 Hollywood movie, The Blind Side. It's about how a wealthy white family adopted Orr out of poverty and helped him make it to the NFL. Now, Orr is alleging that a central part of the story is false. In a court filing this week, he said he was never adopted and that the Tui family tricked him into signing conservatorship papers shortly after he turned 18, earning them millions. Chris Bumbaka is an NFL reporter for USA Today Sports. So what is Michael Orr saying about how the family used this conservatorship to their benefit? Thank you very much for having me. Yes, he's saying that they deceived him and that instead of legally adopting him, which they said that those were the papers he was signing, they actually got him to sign this conservatorship. And in there, he's uh, alleging that they owe him money from a $225,000 payment they made from the blockbuster hit the blind side along with 2.5% of defined net proceeds. Now, barring some subsequent agreement, defined net proceeds won't really be that much money in the in the grand scheme of things, said somebody who litigates in entertainment law, even on a movie that grossed more than $300 million, And the Tuies have said this week that they made around mid-five figures each. Nonetheless, Orr requested a full accounting of money that they might have made on his name and likeness, and he's also seeking 
uh, an injunction on them using their name and likeness in his business and foundation work. What does Orr say is the reason why he was told he needed to sign a conservatorship? Well, Sean Toohey, the uh, the father figure in this tale, um, told the Daily Memphian that for him to attend Ole Miss, where the Tuies also went to school, they would need to have Michael under this conservatorship to uh, kind of dissuade the NCAA from investigating his attendance at Ole Miss, even though that ended up happening anyway. But the conservatorship was basically presented to Michael as a means of protection, it seems, Sean Toohey said in his comments to the Daily Memphian this week. And I know that when a kid is under 18, they would need their parents to sign off on scholarship papers in the NCAA. He was 18. Michael Orr was 18. So he technically wouldn't have needed to sign a conservatorship to play college football, right? That is correct. And legal experts I've spoken to have said that there is no basis for this conservatorship to have been signed anyway. Um, Even though he was present at uh, the hearing according to court records and his mother was there, um, you know, and he's now saying that uh, he he was not aware that this happened at all. So th- that's definitely you know an interesting point. And the fact that this conservatorship even existed is uh, is quite the conundrum. It's been 20 years, though, Chris. I mean, so w- what do we know about the relationship between Michael Orr and the Tuies over all these years? Well, Sean Tuey Jr. on a radio appearance with Barstool Radio on Monday said that there has been some distancing from the family since his playing career ended in 2016. Uh, and especially in the last few years, and that now the Tuies have come out and said that, you know, this is a, a baseless petition and that they need to um, defend themselves and that that defense is just in its infancy. And one more thing quickly, could this mean that Michael Orr ultimately regains control of his life story that's obviously been very profitable? I think so. I think that's ultimately the goal here and that it doesn't really have much to do with money and that it, this is just about making sure that he can make decisions for himself. Chris Mubaka is an NFL reporter for USA Today Sports. Chris, thanks. Thank you very much. This is NPR News. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, it's been a year now since the most significant piece of climate policy in U.S. history was signed into law. We look at whether it's had an impact. It's 7.50. I'm Steve Inskeep. Around the world, our co-host Leila Fadel has been reporting from Ukraine. In your community, workers are unionizing in fields where they haven't always had a big presence. And farther afield, think really far, like out of this world. And liftoff of Artemis 1. Morning Edition from NPR News takes you wherever the story is. Listen every weekday. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Polls show that despite historic indictments, former President Donald Trump continues to strengthen his support among members of the Republican Party. North Korean officials say an American soldier illegally crossed the border because of inequality and racism in the U.S. military. And coup leaders in Niger are taking steps to cement their claim to power as neighboring countries vow to reinstate the country's ousted president. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Geo Swaby. On view now. Learn more at PEM.org. Mid-70s today with cloudy skies that may give way to rain and thunderstorms this morning. Tonight, still overcast and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, more rain possible in the morning, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm A. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. This year alone, the ACLU is tracking nearly 500 bills in state legislatures across the country aimed at the LGBTQ community. Laws banning gender-affirming care, targeting drag performances, and censoring school curriculum. But there's a long history here. NPR's podcast, Through Line, takes us back to the mid-20th century to a period known as the Lavender Scare. Here are hosts Rand Abdel-Fattah and Ramtin Arablouei. In 1950, Senator Joseph McCarthy gave a now-infamous speech warning of communist infiltration of the U.S. government. Today we are engaged in a final, all-out battle between communistic atheism and Christianity. There isn't a recording of the speech. It's being read here by an actor. I have here in my hand a list of 205. A list of names that were made known to the Secretary of State as being members of the Communist Party and who nevertheless are still working and shaping policy in the State Department. It turns out there weren't 205 people because the number kept changing and they also all weren't card-carrying communists. This is David K. Johnson. He's a history professor at the University of South Florida. And he says there was another key detail from the list that was confirmed by a State Department official later. And it turned out that several on this list were actually homosexuals that had been removed from the State Department because they considered them to be security risks. As part of the Red Scare, Senator McCarthy also targeted gay and lesbian government employees as potential threats in what's come to be known as the Lavender Scare. A lavender brush and a red brush. The sort of idea that they're both kind of a threat to traditional American values, the, the family and the sort of traditional political values. That's Margot Kennedy, professor of history at Princeton University. There's this sort of notion of it's this mysterious and lurking and malignant force that threatens the very fiber of American society. It wasn't that they were communists themselves, but they because they were you know, hiding, presumably, therefore vulnerable to blackmail. The idea was that their presumed fear of being outed would make them easy targets for Soviet spies. And so to prevent that threat, they should be fired from government jobs. There was almost no one who, who stood up to object to it. Even though... There was no evidence that any gay man or lesbian was being blackmailed by foreign agents. And to this day, that's still true. This fear-mongering became a powerful political tool. In the next election cycle, presidential candidate Dwight D. Eisenhower embraced the tactic. The Republicans' campaign slogan in 1952 is let's clean house, right? Let's get rid of all of these undesirables 
who have infiltrated the federal government. Within months of taking office, President Eisenhower signed Executive Order 10450, which explicitly states that people who engage in so-called sexual perversion can't serve in any branches of the government. An entire system of surveillance was put in place to uncover people's most intimate relations. Local police scoured bars. The Postal Service tracked correspondence. This information then became the basis for federal employers to investigate or terminate someone's employment. Most people didn't challenge their dismissals. They just stopped showing up to work one day. There didn't seem to be another option until one man dared to bring the ruckus. We are seeking our human dignity, our equality and our acceptance as the homosexuals that we are and have a right to be. So Frank Kameny is a total original. I mean, he's almost hard to describe. He was so unconventional and such a maverick. And he just had a very strong sense that he had been wronged and it wasn't acceptable. Frank Kameny didn't plan on being one of the nation's first gay rights activists. He had always wanted to be uh, an astronomer since he was a kid. He eventually found his way to a government job at the Army Map Service. And then, it all came crashing down. In the mid-1950s, he was arrested in a restroom in a known cruising area in San Francisco. And he lost his job in the government as a result. But from the very beginning, Kameny never conceded. He's brought into a room and, and asked, the civil service has information that you were a homosexual. What comment do you care to make? And as a fairly nerdy scientist, he didn't understand, like, why do you care about my sex life? He decided to take legal action to fight his termination, which is something gay people in the 1950s and 1960s, when they lost their jobs, they didn't think about what my legal redress is. Even though he wasn't a lawyer, Kameny fought his termination all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which refused to hear his case. But that setback didn't stop him from helping other government employees being investigated for their sexuality. In 1963, a budget analyst named Clifford Norton was fired from his job at NASA. Also arrested in a, in a gay cruising area in Washington. He wanted to fight back. And guess who showed up to help him? Frank Kameny. Kameny works with him and works with the ACLU. Together, Kameny and Norton took his case all the way up the Federal Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C. And they won. The Norton case comes down at the beginning of July 1969. So it's essentially the same week as the Stonewall riots in New York, which are often credited with the beginning of the gay rights movement. And this was actually one of its first major victories. Kameny kept fighting until the Lavender Scare officially ended in 1995. That was Ramtin Arablouei and Randabza Fateh, the hosts of NPR's history podcast, Throughline. You can hear the whole episode wherever you get your podcasts.
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Polls show that despite former President Donald Trump's fourth indictment, nearly two-thirds of Republicans say they want him to be re-elected. It's Wednesday, August 16th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, people in Hawaii are racing to preserve rare artifacts damaged in the Maui wildfires. The flag that was lowered when the Kingdom of Hawaii was overthrown. Amazing kappa artwork pieces, featherwork from Native Hawaiians. Also, NPR has obtained confidential files that reveal significant failures at immigration detention facilities pepper spraying of mentally ill detainees, retaliation for filing complaints, ignoring medical problems, filthy conditions, and grimy medical instruments. And this hour, we look at what's been accomplished in the years since the most significant piece of climate policy in U.S. history was signed into law. Cloudy and in the 70s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Survivors of the deadly wildfires in Maui that destroyed the city of Lahaina are finding communications are still difficult with intermittent power and unreliable cell service. At least 106 people are dead. Many residents say they are worried about scammers and major developers coming in to buy up the land as they try to rebuild their lives. Hawaii Governor Josh Green says he will come down hard on anyone who does. If someone behaves in a predatory fashion towards one of the people that are suffering right now who have lost their loved ones or lost their home, lost their rental, and they try to buy land out from under them, you can be sure I will not be allowing anyone to build or rezone or do anything of that sort if they've taken advantage of anyone here. President Biden says he will visit the area soon. On Capitol Hill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is marking the first anniversary of President Biden's major legislative achievement, also known as the Inflation Reduction Act. NPR's Deirdre Walsh has more. Schumer acknowledged that it will take a while for the impact of the climate and health care bill to sink in with voters. But he says, quote, the best is yet to come. The Senate Majority Leader argues that talking about the economic benefits of the law, which Democrats passed on their own, will show a major contrast between the two parties in the 2024 election. And I think the contrast between the Republicans and us is glaring. We are investing. They are investigating. Schumer says that what he calls the largest climate action bill in history will lower costs and expand the middle class by creating new jobs in the energy sector. But Republicans say Americans are still paying higher prices and that inflation will hurt Democrats next fall at the ballot box. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, Washington. Federal officials are easing cutbacks on some users of the Colorado River after a wet winter gave the nation's largest reservoirs a boost. From member station KUNC, Alex Hager has more. Arizona and Nevada will still face some cutbacks to their water supplies in 2024, but they'll be less steep than this year's. That's according to the Bureau of Reclamation. But pressure is still on policymakers to reduce water demand over the long term. Brenda Berman directs the Central Arizona Project, which brings Colorado River water to the Phoenix area. All of us who rely on the river, who rely on our amazing infrastructure, have to be able to come to the table and show how they can live with less. 
Human-caused climate change is shrinking the amount of water in the river, and the seven states that use it are scrambling to find ways to cut back on demand from cities and farms across the arid west. For NPR News, I'm Alex Hager in Fort Collins, Colorado. In women's World Cup soccer, England is heading to the finals to play Spain this weekend, this after beating Australia this morning, 3-1. to U.S. futures contracts are trading mixed. You're listening to NPR News. United Nations Special Envoy for Global Education is calling for the International Criminal Court to prosecute Taliban leaders for crimes against humanity, this for denying education and employment to Afghan girls and women. Gordon Brown says gender discrimination should count as a crime against humanity and it should be prosecuted. Since the Taliban gained power in Afghanistan two years ago, girls and women are banned from most jobs and from school beyond the sixth grade. China condemned the travels of Taiwan's vice president, William Lai, after he made a short stop in the U.S. Lai is running for president this coming January, and China is signaling it won't be happy if he wins. NPR's Emily Fang has more. China accused William Lai of being a separatist who wants formal Taiwanese independence from China, something he has explicitly denied, including once again this week in an interview with Bloomberg. China sees democratic Taiwan as its province, even though Taiwan has its own president and military. Lai is leading polls to be Taiwan's next president and is on a trip to the U.S. and Paraguay that started last week, in part to quietly meet with U.S. officials and to boost his foreign policy credentials. China said this visit was evidence the U.S. was, quote, bent on using Taiwan to contain China. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. World financial markets, Asian markets sharply lower by the close. The Nikkei in Japan down nearly 1.5%. The Nikkei, or the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, down 1.3%. U.S. futures contracts are trading flat. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. An attorney for the Boston City Council has filed a complaint against three counselors accusing them of bullying and berating her during a meeting in April. As WBWAR's Walter Wuthman reports, the newly revealed allegations add to a growing list of ethics scandals surrounding the city's legislative body. Staff Counsel Christine O'Donnell said the harassment occurred when she was giving the council president legal advice about a committee assignment. In a letter, she wrote that Councilor Ricardo Arroyo continuously shouted at her from across the room in an attempt to intimidate her. O'Donnell said Councilors Kendra Lara and Julia Mejia also spoke up to question her competence and authority. Arroyo disputed the account, saying he was speaking only to the council president and not the staff attorney. Laura and Mejia did not respond to requests for comment. Council President Ed Flynn held a working session on workplace bullying last week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Councillor Kendra Laura is due to appear in court later this morning. She faces criminal charges from crashing an unregistered and uninsured car into a house last month while her license was suspended. Boston health officials are asking families to make sure they're updated on COVID-19 vaccinations ahead of the new school year. COVID cases are already increasing locally. Officials with the Boston Public Health Commission warn cases could climb this fall as back-to-school coincides with cold and flu season. The federal government is expected to approve a new COVID-19 vaccine booster in the coming weeks.
The Massachusetts Educational Financing Authority is hosting a virtual FAFSA festival today. It's meant to help college-bound students navigate the financial aid application process. The federal government's FAFSA form asks families questions about finances and family dynamics. The state financing authorities, Julie Shields-Rutina, says that can cause a lot of anxiety for families, but she hopes today's free festival can help. I've just seen the anxiety completely leave people once they realize they're in good hands with someone who's going to answer their questions, give them good advice, and help them through it. She says the festival is designed for families who may still want to send students to college this fall but haven't yet applied for financial aid. The virtual festival takes place in three languages between 10 and noon and 4 and 6. Right now, it's 8.08. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. The Red Sox began their longest road trip of the season yesterday in D.C., and it ended in a win. The Sox defeated the Washington Nationals 5-4. They play again tonight at 7. Cloudy with a high in the mid-70s today, and there's a chance of showers and thunderstorms this morning. Tonight, cloudy with lows in the mid-60s. More showers and thunderstorms possible overnight. Then tomorrow, a chance of rain in the morning. Otherwise, mostly cloudy skies with high temperatures in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden in Washington, D.C. And I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. With each passing indictment of former President Donald Trump, up to four indictments now, Republicans appear largely unfazed. So what explains that? And what does it mean for the next phase of the Republican presidential primary? NPR senior political correspondent and editor Domenico Montanaro is here to discuss. Good morning, Domenico. Good morning, Leela. Okay, so we should get across first that we're talking about Trump's grip on the base of his party, right? He's viewed far more negatively overall. Yeah, I mean, overall, he remains highly unpopular, you know, and has had a repelling effect, frankly, with independence. You know, Trump has led his party to a few disappointing elections in a row, and he's done very little to expand his base beyond that in the years since winning the White House in 2016. So it's pretty hard to see his path to winning again in 2024 without some help potentially from a third party. Mm. And that's why, you know, you hear Democratic strategists and pollsters really ringing the alarm bells about these potential third party efforts that have been cropping up recently, especially because Trump and Biden are so unpopular right now. Now, Trump is competing in the Republican primary, and that's where he's seen far more favorably. Yeah, I mean, with Republicans, it's a totally different story. They're living in a completely different universe than Democrats and independents when it comes to Trump. You know, about half of Republican voters seem nearly locked in for him and seem to believe almost everything that he tells them about what he claims are witch hunts and double standards. And that includes his baseless election claims. You know, we know that Joe Biden won in 2020 fair and square, but a recent CNN poll showed that seven in 10 Republicans do not believe that. Mm. 56% of those Republicans who said that they believe Biden lost said that they based those views on get this solid evidence of which there's none right you know it really just shows how hyper-partisan our political environments become and the results of trump and other republicans relentless campaigns against expertise and definitive sources and once you're able to undermine those things you can really make people believe almost anything now since the georgia indictment came out on monday are you seeing new efforts by trump to reinforce this sense of grievance with his followers 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been proven repeatedly in recounts, audits, dozens of court cases that there were no widespread fraud that would have changed any results. And right. yet Trump will be at it again Monday in what he's calling a news conference from his golf course in New Jersey. He says he's going to present evidence of fraud that will vindicate him. But this is really an old page from the Trump playbook. He's done this over and over again since he lost in 2020. And all of the conspiracies he's put forward have been disproven. In fact, Georgia Republican governor Brian Kemp swatted these claims aside yesterday. He said again that the state's elections are secure and fair and that no one has proved anything under oath in a court of law and that there was no substantive fraud. Kemp really is an interesting figure. He's a Republican who rebuffed Trump and then cruised to re-election in a swing state, but not many other Republicans or any of Trump's current primary opponents you know, have really chosen or been able to follow that model. Right. And that brings us to the first Republican presidential debate set for Wednesday of next week. First of all, we don't even know if Trump will participate, but either way, his presence will be looming there. Oh, definitely. I mean, we know that the other campaigns have had Trump at the center of their debate prep. You know, some candidates who've been lagging want to make Trump answer for these indictments. I'm thinking of former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and others. But, you know, the thinking in Trump world is why bother when he's so far ahead in the polls. If there was a time to make a move, you know, you might think it would start next week in a primetime debate. We're going to see because we're less than five months away from the Iowa caucuses now. NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thanks, Domenico. You're welcome. The wildfires on Maui have threatened and in some cases destroyed many of the Hawaiian islands' historic and cultural treasures. Heritage workers are in the early stages of planning recovery and restoration efforts. NPR's Chloe Veltman says despite the devastation, they're optimistic that not all is lost. Within a couple of days of the start of Maui's fires, government officials, preservation experts and contractors had already held a meeting to talk about how to coordinate the cleanup effort with salvaging cultural artefacts. Tanya Lee Gregg has overseen cultural preservation projects on Maui. She kicked off the discussion. I hope we can work toward understanding what the needs are with regard to historic preservation and the resources that are important to our people, important to our history. Principal archaeologist for the county of Maui, Janet Six, was also there. She says a lot of the focus is on the tourist town of Lahaina because the National Historic Landmark District was ravaged. Six says Lahaina has a complex past. People have been living in the area for more than a thousand years. They made an island called Moku'ula in the middle of a wetlands and that became the royal seat. Moku'ula served as the private residence of King Kamehameha III in the mid-1800s. The Hawaiian constitution was drafted there. But in the 19-teens, local authorities backfilled the wetlands, burying Moku'ula. That's now under a baseball field. <laughs> out of sight, out of mind. Most of the historic landmarks in Lahaina had dated back to the colonial sugar plantation era of the 1800s because the plantations destroyed the pre-colonial sites. Now, many of these colonial structures are in various states of collapse and their artifacts endangered. The flag that was lowered when the Kingdom of Hawaii was overthrown, amazing kapa artwork pieces, featherwork from Native Hawaiians. That's the Lahaina Restoration Foundation's Kimberly Fluke, listing some of the treasures of Lahaina's Heritage Museum, which might be lost. The museum was housed in the old courthouse. Fluke says its roof collapsed, but much of the walls are still standing because they're constructed from sturdy coral blocks. And so that's going to survive a fire, and being able to hopefully rebuild those is something we do have experience in. So there's hope. 
Plus, some of Lahaina's historic sites, like one of Hawaii's first Christian cemeteries, remain mostly intact. Fluk says she's also relieved the foundation extensively digitised its collections. We may have lost the physical elements, but we have amazing photographs and recreations and translations and transcriptions. That's footage from last year's Emma Farden Sharp Hula Festival. It usually takes place under the famous banyan tree in downtown Lahaina, a local landmark that was badly burned. Organiser Daryl Fujiwara says he intended to cancel the festival. A lot of dancers, you know, in these hula schools, they're all facing so many hardships. A lot of them lost their homes. But the performers still wanted to go ahead, so he pivoted to producing the event virtually on Facebook. The performers this year danced indoors in front of a backdrop of white sheets and floral arrangements. It wasn't the same. But Fujiwara says Hawaiians have learned to deal with the loss of many important historic and sacred sites, especially owing to the plundering and negligence of colonial powers. Even though we've lost those places, they still remain in our stories, in our songs, and our dances. And that's how we have been able to survive. Fujiwara says he's optimistic the banyan tree will return to life. He says he's currently designing T-shirts with an image of the tree as a symbol of Maui's resilience and hope. Chloe Veltman, NPR News. It's been three weeks since security forces ousted the elected president of Niger, and the coup's leaders appear to be tightening their grip on power. Neighboring countries in Africa have imposed sanctions and threatened military intervention in an attempt to reverse the coup, but so far those efforts have failed. Pressure by the U.S. and France, who had seen Niger as one reliable democratic ally in an increasingly unstable region, also hasn't worked yet. Now, the coup leaders are arresting opponents and taking steps setting up their own new government. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu joins us from Lagos, Nigeria with an update. Good morning. Good morning. So Emmanuel, rhetoric from the military leaders who have taken over sounds increasingly defiant. What should we take from that? Yes, you know, it's been three weeks since the coup now and the Niger military leaders have moved really quickly and quite aggressively so far. They've been resisting major diplomatic pressure against them. They've arrested many of the cabinet ministers and replaced them with figures that really suggest that they're making a strategic long-term look at control of the country. Mm. They've cut former diplomatic ties with France, its former colonial ruler, with Nigeria and Togo, initially with the US too, although high-level discussions and relations are ongoing. They've quickly moved to restore relations with military regimes in Mali and Burkina Faso. You know, these are countries that were isolated by most of the region in West Africa, including by the now deposed Niger government, because those countries have had military takeovers too. So the countries that want to reverse this coup, including the U.S., are they continuing to put pressure on the junta? Yes, and the headline move really was the seven-day ultimatum by the regional bloc of West African countries that's called ECOWAS. And the ultimatum was to reverse the coup or release President Mohamed Bazoum, who's still being detained, or face the possibility of military intervention. And that ultimatum lapsed. The Niger military called their bluff. Intervention now appears unlikely. And really that only succeeded in creating a siege mentality among the Niger coup leaders. They announced earlier this week they would actually try Bazoum for treason and clearly they are holding him as important leverage. There's a meeting of ECOWAS leaders tomorrow and we'll see what comes out of that. But for now, the sanctions are ongoing. 
power supply from Nigeria has been cut. Uh, there are now power cuts in, in parts of Niger. Mm. Aid has been cut from France. And many people in this very poor country um, are grappling with these power cuts, with the economic impact of this. But the junta is consolidating power. Now, some 25 million people live in Niger. Maybe these sanctions are aimed at the coup leaders. But how is this impacting them? What can you tell us about life under this new military rule? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it it's hard to get a clear picture of this, but it seems very polarizing. We've had a lot of visible support for the coup, mainly in the capital, um, where the government's really unpopular. And, uh, you know, we've seen pro-coup demonstrations in the streets, a rally in a stadium, but there's also upset. Anti-coup protests were dispersed by soldiers and there's unease in other parts of the country. You know, this is a very poor landlocked country in a fragile part of the world, battling multiple insurgencies by armed groups. Before the coup, Niger was held for its democratic gains and handover of power, but it had a very flawed system and it faces now a very uncertain and worrying future. That's NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reporting on the situation in Niger from Lagos, Nigeria. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Wednesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, an NPR investigation reveals that the U.S. government's own experts documented barbaric and negligent treatment at ICE detention centers. It's 820. Opioid overdose deaths for black Americans have jumped, in some cases as much as 86 percent. We have to look at this as an unacceptable number. We must have a response that matches that historic number in terms of saving lives. I'm Deborah Becker. What's behind the increase in overdoses for black Americans? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Showers and thunderstorms are possible this morning. Otherwise cloudy today with a high near 74. Tonight mostly cloudy and a low around 65. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, more rain possible in the morning. It'll be mostly cloudy with a high near 76. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Martinez. One year ago, President Biden signed the most significant piece of climate policy in U.S. history. It's called the Inflation Reduction Act. The law aims to shift the U.S. economy away from fossil fuels and slash greenhouse gas emissions. NPR's Camila Damanaski covers cars and energy, and Rachel Waltholtz is an editor on our climate team. They're here to tell us how it's all been going. So let's start uh, with you, Rachel. Let's start with the basics. What does this law do? 
Well, it's a really big law, so it's doing a lot. But essentially, I think of it as this giant basket of incentives that's aimed at getting all of these different parts of the economy to cut their greenhouse gas emissions by making that cheaper than using fossil fuels. So basically, the federal government is spending hundreds of billions of dollars to subsidize renewable energy and other technologies. Uh, I spoke with Jesse Jenkins. He's a professor at Princeton who worked on the law, and this is how he put it. In essence, it puts clean energy on sale for households and businesses and industries all over the country, lowering the cost of adoption of everything from electric vehicles to solar panels to manufacturing facilities. And I'll just jump in here. This is Camila to note that this law passed last year with only Democratic votes. Republicans now control the House, and many of them want to repeal these climate measures, both because of the price tag associated, which has been growing, uh, and because they simply don't believe the U.S. should be rapidly shifting away from fossil fuels. All right, so a really ambitious law. Um, Camila, what are we seeing in year one? Yeah. So two really big things are happening. And I cover business. This is based on both looking at data and talking to individual businesses, right? The first is the shift to clean energy is happening faster than it was expected to. And the second is that more of the manufacturing involved in that big change is happening in the United States. That was another big goal of this law. Um, It takes time, obviously, to go from starting a factory to having a finished product, but a lot of projects are getting launched. Yeah, and while the law provides a lot of economic incentives, though, there are a lot of non-economic hurdles for these projects. So this law is pumping a ton of money into things like renewable energy and electric vehicles. But those projects face issues, you know, clean energy projects. They need land. They need permits. They need to connect to the grid. Those are all huge challenges. So everything is moving faster, but there are definitely still hurdles. But overall, you know, what we'd say is that we are definitely seeing investment starting to happen, especially around electric vehicles and around manufacturing for batteries and the components for solar panels. All right. So that's the big picture. But what about uh, for me, the little the little person, uh, Camila, if I'm considering maybe an EV or solar panels, I mean, what's in it for me? Yeah. So for electric vehicles, there are federal subsidies, a consumer tax credit of up to $7,500. That is a famously confusing tax credit to figure out if you qualify for. It should get a little easier next year when you're able to get it at the dealership uh, right up front. There are also tax credits available right now for things like electric heat pumps or solar panels if you're upgrading your house to be greener. There's also another program on the way. This is money for households that are under a certain income level. They're rebates on those same kinds of green upgrades to your home. But that federal money is actually going through the states. So it's taking some time to get it up and running, um, but it's on the way. All right. Now, Rachel, we said this is a major climate policy. So how does it score on that front? Yeah, as a climate policy, it's a really big deal. Studies agree that it should help the U.S. significantly reduce its contribution to climate change by cutting emissions from fossil fuels. But by itself, it's still not enough to meet the Biden administration's goal of cutting emissions in half by 2030. And that's important because that's the target that scientists say is necessary to keep warming low enough to limit warming and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So I think Stepping back, it's pretty extraordinary that we're having this conversation because 
just a couple of years ago, it didn't seem possible to go as fast as this law now suggests the U.S. is going to go. And yet the scale of the problem is so big that the U.S. needs to go even faster. So overall, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, has really changed the conversation on climate change. For a long time, the question was, is the U.S. government going to act? And the answer now is Yes, the federal government has put a ton of money on the table. And the question now is like whether the rest of society, other economic players, will pick up those incentives and run with them. That's NPR's Rachel Waltz-Holtz and Camila Damanowski. Thanks to you both. Thank you. Human-caused climate change has led to record-breaking temperatures across the country and much of the world this summer. Dina Pritchett lives in Portland, Oregon, where summers are usually temperate, but on Monday the city hit 108 degrees. 108 degrees wasn't just a daily record. It's actually the hottest temperature Portland's ever recorded in the entire month of August. As even my six-year-old daughter Odessa can tell you, the heat makes it hard to go about daily life. I was supposed to go to camp today, but it was so hot that it got canceled. Portland isn't just having record highs. It's also matching records for minimum temperatures, meaning you don't even get a break at night. I was definitely sweating. Like my shirt, it was stuck to my skin. Schedules for everything from trash collection to football practice have shifted to start hours earlier and finish before temperatures peak. The city is also working to avoid the losses of 2021's heat dome. They've set up cooling centers for the hottest part of the day, circulated maps of air-conditioned public spaces. And city buses will take folks there for free. They've been a lot more better prepared this time. George Wood is at a temporary misting station in southeast Portland. The Water Bureau set up over a dozen of these in parks across the city. Anyone can walk up and wet their head or fill their water bottles. They didn't really have any of this stuff set up last time. But I mean, like even just a simple station like this really helps out a lot. Wood lives in a tent, which can't really protect against temperatures like these. There's been a lot of outreach people that have come by, making sure that we stay hydrated and trying to keep up with the cooling. Wood is also looking out for his dog, Winston. The misting stations have little taps by the ground where pets can get a drink. The city is urging Portlanders to stay cool as best they can and check in on their neighbors. The National Weather Service expects temperatures to drop back to normal by the end of the week and hopes these are the last of the triple-digit days, at least for this year. For NPR News, I'm Dina Pritchup in Portland, Oregon. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBMR's Morning Edition. Why Kentucky Senator Mitch McConnell's recent health concerns have led to scrutiny of that state's appointment system. It's 829. Use the WBMR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The death toll from wildfires in Hawaii now stands at 106. Officials expect that number to continue going up as search teams examine more burned houses, businesses, and vehicles on Maui. The historic town of Lahaina was mostly destroyed. Urban search teams deployed by the Federal Emergency Management Agency are helping to locate additional human remains. Eric Darling is working with authorities along with his black lab, Maisie. 
every single dog is doing an outstanding job. It's not just Maisie and I. It's a, this is a group effort, and the men and women that are doing it are by far the best that we have. Some residents of Maui are being allowed back in to assess their losses. Strong storms that moved across much of the East Coast yesterday are blamed for at least one death in North Carolina. Elizabeth Kennedy says a large tree fell on her house in the Durham area. When I went up to the living room, it just, you know, I just lost it. Because to look and see that a tree is laying in your house and it destroyed your whole house on the on the inside. Later today at the White House, President Biden plans to mark one year since he signed the Inflation Reduction Act into law. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. There was a slight increase in suicides in Massachusetts last year. That's according to preliminary data from the Centers for Disease Control. It's the first increase in suicides in the state in four years, and it comes as suicides nationally reach an all-time high. WBUR's Lynn Jolliker has more. 626 people died by suicide in Massachusetts. That's up nearly 4 percent. Suicides had declined since 2019. Kelly Cunningham oversees suicide prevention for the State Department of Public Health. She says the pandemic had some protective factors because the message was, we're in this together. And now we're out of that. It went back to status quo, which was one of the things I was really afraid of, is how can we keep that message going so people know that they are not alone, that there are people out there feeling like they do, and there are places that you can go. Including the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, which you can call or text, and the state's new network of community behavioral health centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lynn Jolliker. There's a new political spending group in the city looking to unseat Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo. State filings show the Enough is Enough PAC plans to fund opposition campaigns against Arroyo ahead of the preliminary elections next month. The District 5 councilor was recently fined for violating a state ethics law. He was also named in the investigations into former U.S. Attorney Rachel Rollins. Arroyo's campaign tells the Boston Herald it's confident going into this year's elections. Our rainy summer might not be doing any favors for this year's fall colors. The Old Farmer's Almanac predicts that most of the region will experience peak fall colors around October 11th. But Nicole Kelleher with the State Department of Conservation and Recreation says wet weather may mean the leaves aren't as vibrant this year. So you'll see more leaves that have like brown or black spots on them or or discolored um, from funguses that have been growing and feeding on the leaves. And that physical damage to the leaf by those funguses present uh, can really impact how they change their color in the fall and kind of how they look as their colors changing. Kelleher says the fungus could also impact how long the fall foliage sticks around. It's 8.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit. See art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 4th. ICABoston.org. The Red Sox are celebrating a win against the Washington Nationals. Final score last night was 5-4. to four. The teams will play game two of three tonight at 7. Overcast with a high in the mid-70s today. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms this morning. It stays overcast tonight and falls to lows in the mid-60s. More showers and thunderstorms possible overnight. Then mostly cloudy and highs in the mid-70s tomorrow with a chance of rain in the morning. Right now it's 68 degrees in Boston. You're 
WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington. In the country's bitter debate over immigration and border policy, immigration detention has become a flashpoint. Now, an NPR investigation stretching over more than three years has revealed a massive trove of government records. They show that the government's own experts found barbaric treatment, negligent medical and mental health care, racist abuse, and what one expert called astonishing failures inside these detention facilities. Administrations under both Donald Trump and Joe Biden fought the release of these records. NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach has been reporting this story. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Okay, so before we get to the actual findings, can you give a sense of who was writing these reports and what they were looking for? Yeah, so these reports are written by experts in subjects like medical care, mental health, use of force, and environmental safety. Now, these experts are hired by the Department of Homeland Security to investigate complaints and claims of civil rights abuses in immigration detention centers. So these are facilities that lock up immigrants on behalf of Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. The goal is to make sure people show up for their appearances in immigration court. Now, that could include people who cross the border seeking asylum or people who entered the country illegally illegally who are fighting deportation. Now, these inspectors are known to find problems that others overlook and to write in a much more unvarnished way than you hear in a typical government report. The government has been fighting our efforts to get these reports since 2019. So we later filed a lawsuit and it took years, but a judge found that the government had violated the Freedom of Information Act and ordered them to send us these files. And a reminder that it was both the Trump and Biden administration that fought the release of these files. What do they say? We got more than 1,600 pages of reports covering more than two dozen facilities all across the country from 2017 to 2019, because that's when our lawsuit started. These inspectors found serious problems, Uh, pepper spraying of mentally ill detainees, retaliation for filing complaints, ignoring medical problems, filthy conditions, including a cockroach found on a medical exam table and medical instruments covered in grime. Some of the examples that stick out in Michigan, a man who had just had surgery and had active surgical drains was placed in general population with no bandages and no wound care and no medical appointments. And when the inspector asked about it, the facility's medical director said he had no idea. In Pennsylvania, a mentally ill man was locked into a restraint chair and a group of male guards gave the lone female guard a pair of scissors to cut off his clothes and conduct a strip search. The inspector said there was no justifiable reason for this and called the kind of cross-gender strip search barbaric. You're describing some pretty troubling things, but you first requested these records in 2019 and 2023. How have conditions changed since then? Right. And a White House spokesperson said in a statement that these reports document conditions under the prior administration, meaning under Donald Trump. But they're not releasing the documents from today either, are they? That's right. We've requested newer documents. Uh, We're still waiting for the government to send us 
those documents. But I should say that the Biden administration in their statement did not contend that conditions have gotten better on their watch. I should say I also reached out to the Trump campaign. They did not respond. And experts and immigration attorneys I spoke to said the COVID-19 pandemic really made conditions inside detention worse in many ways. Several of these reports include warnings that because of overcrowding and poor cleaning, lack of vaccination practices, people were vulnerable to respiratory illnesses. And then during the height of COVID, a lot of inspections were done remotely, like over Zoom or just looking at paper records. And so there was even less oversight of the system. I talked about all this with Eunice Cho. She has spent years visiting these facilities for the ACLU. Unfortunately, this is not an outlier. I think this is the tip of the iceberg. And if anything, conditions have probably gotten worse. And have you spoken to people who've actually been detained in these facilities? Yeah, I've talked to several people who have been locked up in ICE detention to see how their experiences compared with what's documented in these reports. One was a 57-year-old man named Jose. He first came to the U.S. in the 80s, fleeing civil war in El Salvador, where he was born. He's undocumented, though he has kids who are U.S. citizens. And he was arrested by ICE last year in 2022 and held at the Orange County Jail in New York. Jose has diabetes and heart problems. He says he was not given access to his prescription meds. And as a result, he had a heart attack. He was taken to a hospital, had to have a stent placed, and then sent back to the jail. And he says, again, he was not given his meds for days, and he was worried he would die. Eventually, he was able to be released because of his health problems. But he thinks the jail did permanent damage to his health. He said it was like a form of punishment, and ICE should investigate and make sure they treat people like humans and not animals. The inspection reports we obtained showed that this facility has major issues with racist abuse of detainees and failures to provide medical care. I mean, it's hard to hear that. Someone saying, just treat us like people, not animals. And in some cases, these problems have led to deaths in ICE detention. What have you learned about that? Well, one of the reports we obtained discusses what an inspector called an egregious failure. A 64-year-old man at an ICE detention center in Aurora, Colorado, was cut off cold turkey from methadone, which he had been taking for decades to manage opioid use disorder. He then went into severe withdrawal. ICE records say the doctor never examined him. Nurses skipped medical checks, even though his health was spiraling and he ultimately passed away. The report we obtained says, quote, the complete lack of medical leadership, supervision, and care that this detainee was exposed to is simply astonishing and stands out as one of the most egregious failures to provide optimal care in my experience. Now, just last fall, another man died in that same facility. His family is concerned that his health problems were ignored, and we obtained the 911 call from that incident showing that there were some serious gaps in communication. I mean, what you've found in these documents is really troubling. What kind of response did you get from the government? Well, a Department of Homeland Security spokesperson said in a statement that ICE takes its responsibilities to provide a safe, secure, and humane environment seriously, and they pointed out that they have closed a handful of detention centers because of poor conditions. The White House also sent a statement saying that They are increasingly relying on alternatives to detention, like GPS monitoring, so people can remain on the outside while their cases go through the system. I should note here, though, that the Biden campaign had promised to end contracts with private for-profit companies, which run the vast majority of these ICE detention facilities. Immigration advocates say they have broken that promise. 
And actually, a greater proportion of people are in these privately run facilities compared to the proportion under Trump. Now, the Biden White House statement said they want to move away from the use of privately run detention facilities, but they need Congress to act. That's NPR investigative correspondent Tom Dreisbach. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, Layla. This is NPR News. You're listening to WBUR. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at what deflation in China means for the economy in the U.S. There's a chance of showers and thunderstorms through about mid-morning this morning. Otherwise cloudy today and in the mid-70s. Tonight, still cloudy. Temperatures fall to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, a chance of rain in the morning. Otherwise overcast and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, committed to making a difference in biotech to create and deliver innovative therapies for people with serious diseases. Career opportunities at VRTX.com. Less money is being bet on sports each month in Massachusetts. Massachusetts gaming officials say revenue from sports betting has gone down every month since online betting launched in March. Last month, nearly $295 million was spent on legal sports betting. That's down from $332 million in June. Officials say casino gambling brings more revenue into the state. A new branch of H-Mart is now open in Brookline. It's the Asian grocery store's fourth location in the Boston area. The shop is at the site of a former Whole Foods on Beacon Street. It joins other locations in Burlington, Cambridge, and Quincy. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Amy Martinez. Recent health concerns for U.S. Senators, including Kentucky's Mitch McConnell, have brought attention to the median age of the chamber, a record high 65. And with an aging Congress comes the possibility of vacancies. Louisville Public Media's Sylvia Goodman reports on Kentucky's unique appointment system should a need arise. 
The annual Fancy Farm Church Picnic is a quintessential Kentucky political tradition, and according to organizers, Senator Mitch McConnell has not missed the event since he started coming, assuming the Senate wasn't still in session. But before McConnell took the stage recently, many in the audience did not know if he would even be there. I'm not a personal supporter of Mitch McConnell, but I have been concerned for his health and well-being. So I think it, it would be a good sign if he does make an appearance. Kristen Wilcox, who says she's politically independent, is referring to recent health concerns for the influential senator. Last month, McConnell abruptly froze mid-sentence for about 30 seconds during a news conference. That's after a hospitalization in March for a concussion and minor rib fracture. But McConnell did show up and face the raucous crowd of thousands of Kentuckians. For those of you who keep count, this is my 28th fancy farm. And just that morning, McConnell assured Republicans that, quote, it's not my last. Republican Daniel Ripley, who attended the picnic, said he was glad to see the 81-year-old senator there. But McConnell's health issues have made him consider things like term limits more seriously. He looked a little feeble up there on stage. <laughs> Mr. McConnell's been in there a long time. He's done a lot of good things, but still, I think they should have term limits just like the president. For most of Kentucky's history, the governor simply appointed someone in the case of a vacancy in the Senate. That's happened seven times. But in March of 2021, the state's legislature, backed by McConnell, put in place a new system, one that's quite rare in the U.S. Now the party of the vacating senator gets to furnish the governor with a list of three options, and the governor may then pick someone off of that list. Voters deserve to have someone who has similar viewpoints to them appointed rather than allowing a Democratic governor to appoint a Democrat to the seat who doesn't reflect those views at all. That's Trey Watson, a Republican political consultant and former Kentucky GOP communications director. He says Republicans in the state don't see Kentucky's Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, as willing to compromise. Andy Beshear has not necessarily worked very well with this legislature, and so I think there was some concern there that there wouldn't be that sort of collaboration. Only seven states have adopted this system. According to Vikram Amar, a constitutional law professor at UC Davis, the 17th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was created expressly to remove senatorial appointment power from state legislatures. If there's one thing that's clear about the 17th Amendment is the reason we didn't like indirect election by the state legislature is because we thought the legislatures were too influenced by partisan bosses. Amar says these limitations on a governor's appointment power haven't been challenged in court yet. Anna White, an attorney who used to work for the Kentucky Democratic Party, says she believes it's simply a method of watering down the governor's power. White says she expects that if McConnell were to vacate his seat, Bashir would likely bring the law before the courts. So I would advise the governor step up, challenge it immediately as soon as you are asked that question, rather than simply taking the list of three, picking one, and then bickering over who that should be. McConnell has said he has no intention of leaving his term, which ends in January 2027 early. Without a vacancy, the governor likely won't be able to challenge the constitutionality of the Kentucky state law. For NPR News, I'm Sylvia Goodman in Louisville, Kentucky. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldig. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with a look at how the international community is trying to help women and girls in Afghanistan two years after the Taliban's takeover there. Also, how a surge in disinformation and fake news played into the coup in Niger. It's 849. 
A new Texas law going into effect soon will ban rules guaranteeing water breaks for outdoor workers. A lot of folks have asked me, how could it be that there aren't actual laws guaranteeing people the right to come off of a scaffold and get a drink of water? I'm Elsa Chang, why Texans are pushing for federal standards that protect workers from the heat. On All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Former President Donald Trump continues to lead polls among Republicans despite his latest criminal indictment. Military leaders in Niger are arresting political opponents following the coup that ousted the country's president. And there's mounting evidence that downed power lines likely contributed to the deadly wildfires in Maui. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. And Museum of Science. Maneuver through vibrant, mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Tickets at mos.org. Mid-70s today with cloudy skies that may give way to rain and thunderstorms this morning. Tonight, still overcast and it falls to the mid-60s. Tomorrow, more rain possible in the morning, otherwise mostly cloudy and in the upper 70s. Right now, it's 68 degrees in Boston. Technologies change. Fears remain. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.AI. This is Enterprise AI. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The union representing workers at the big three U.S. automakers is gearing up to vote next week on a possible strike. This labor fight has something in common with striking Hollywood actors and writers. Some of the more contentious issues revolve around the transition to new technologies. For actors and writers, it's artificial intelligence and streaming. For auto workers, it's electric vehicles. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more. The United Auto Workers Union represents nearly 150,000 employees at Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis, and it wants to ensure workers at newly proposed battery-making plants will be unionized as well. The UAW also wants cost-of-living increases and additional pension benefits. It says the Detroit Three can afford it, citing nearly $21 billion in combined profits during the first half of this year. The two sides have been talking since mid-July, but the union says progress has been slow, and he wants a strike authorization vote to pressure auto companies. The Detroit Three say they're facing higher costs and must spend billions to electrify their fleets, investments that may not be profitable for several years. The current labor contract expires on September 14. I'm Novasafa for Marketplace. The weight loss drug Wagovi and the diabetes drug Ozempic both got a lot of buzz and sparked controversy this year, and both are made by Novo Nordisk, the giant pharmaceutical company based in Denmark. The company said recently it is still trying to boost supply of these drugs to meet high demand. Our BBC colleague Leanna Byrne spoke with Novo Nordisk's chief financial officer and filed this report for us. You look great. Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, Is Ozempic right for me? That was Jimmy Kimmel opening the 2023 Academy Awards with a joke about one of the most well-known drugs in the world, Ozempic. 
Despite the fact that it's a drug for people with type 2 diabetes, the drug is often taken for weight loss and has been called the worst kept secret in Hollywood. But what does the maker of this drug think about that? It's something we we have a lot of conversations about and it's, it's also something that uh, is a little bit new for us as a company. That's Karsten Knusten, Chief Financial Officer of Novo Nordisk, which also makes the weight loss drug Wegovi. He says the company takes how their products are being used very seriously. Wegovi is for overweight and Ozempic is for type 2 diabetes. And that's where all our communication efforts and commercial efforts, they, they go on really, really educating uh, physicians and patient organizations around the appropriate use of our products. Novo Nordisk will limit supplies of starter doses of Wegovi until 2024 because the company is unable to meet the demand. It's not fun, but this is uh, to enable continuity of care of, of the patients starting on, uh, on, on Wegovi. And then we increase the uh, those allocations as, as supply comes on stream. Mr. Knudsen says Novo Nordisk is also investing $36 billion in its manufacturing and limiting launches outside the US until it can scale to meet the demand. I'm the BBC's Liana Byrne for Marketplace. All right, let's do the numbers. Dow S&P and NASDAQ futures are all down a tenth of a percent or less with the Dow future down 15 points. The yield on the 10-year Treasury is 4.219%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. To China now, whose economy is showing signs of stress. The country's troubled real estate sector is slowing growth in the country. One symptom of that slowdown is deflation. We're joined by Marketplace's China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Here to talk about it. Hi, Jennifer. Morning, Sabri. So deflation, that is where overall prices are falling, which is so very different from what is happening here in the U.S. And one might be led to wonder, what is the problem with falling prices? Well, falling prices is good, but if it goes on for too long, it really trains consumers to expect prices to fall further, and then they delay their spending, which in turn means companies get less revenue, and then they might start laying off people. And then those unemployed people in turn don't spend as much. So the concern is it could turn into a vicious cycle. So looking at the numbers in July, China's consumer prices were down three-tenths of a percent. Producer prices were down four and four tenths percent. And prices at factory gates have been falling since last October. What is causing that? Well, there are just less buyers overall. Less demand from the U.S. and Europe, partly because of Russia's war in Ukraine and U.S.-China tensions. There's less demand here in China because Chinese consumers just don't have much confidence in the economy. You know, they've gone through three years of endless lockdowns during the pandemic. A lot of people have burned through their savings. Unlike consumers in the U.S., they had no cash handouts here for Chinese consumers. Unemployment is high, plus the property sector is down, which affects every everything in China's economy. We know what this kind of slowdown looks like per the numbers. What's it look like on the ground for regular people? 
So if you go to tourist hotspots this summer, flights are full, restaurants are crowded, it's busy. But when I talk to vendors there, like ask them how's business, quite a number of them say tourists aren't really spending as much as they used to before. Outside of tourism, businesses say they don't have plans for the next three to five years. They just hope to survive. How is China's government responding to this? Well, officials have announced a number of policies to help boost consumer spending and private investment, but most of those policies lack concrete details. China's government has also tried to boost the property sector. The Chinese central bank has lowered interest rates a few times to increase borrowing, hopefully, but none of that has made a difference. Meantime, there are reports that economists and analysts have been warned by officials against talking about negative economic trends in the media, like deflation, for example. So Chinese. Officials are keen to downplay any bad economic news. All right, marketplaces China correspondent Jennifer Pack in Shanghai. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sabri. In New York, I'm Sabri Benishor with the Marketplace Morning Report from APM American Public Media. The soggy weather continues today with rain and thunderstorms possible through mid-morning. Otherwise, we'll have cloudy skies and mid-70s today. The clouds linger tonight and temperatures drop into the mid-60s. There's a chance of rain and thunderstorms overnight. Tomorrow, more showers possible in the morning. It'll be overcast and in the upper 70s. Friday will be partly sunny and in the low 80s, but with a good chance of showers and thunderstorms. It's 69 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming. Coming up next. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.